just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Welcome to Holy Smoke, The Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. When I was in Rome in May, I was told repeatedly that the wheels are coming off the pontificate of Pope Francis, or words to that effect. Now, admittedly, I was speaking to churchmen, including two cardinals, who are theologically conservative and so not in sympathy with this pope. But one of those cardinals had been one of Francis's most senior advisers. And what struck me was that most of the clergy I met if I'd been talking to them, say, two years ago, wouldn't have dreamt of being so personally disparaging about the Holy Father. The common thread in these discussions was that Francis is neglecting his duties by presiding over, even encouraging, a state of backstabbing chaos in which radical but incoherent changes to Catholic Church teaching on divorce, homosexuality and married priests are being dangled in front of ordinary Catholics causing miserable confusion at a time when the church is reeling from ever more disgusting sex scandals. And on that subject, I kept hearing something even more disturbing in Rome, that it was becoming frighteningly clear that Pope Francis was personally complicit in covering up sex abuse and other crimes committed by his allies. So here we are in August, and the Catholic Church is facing two specific nightmares. The first is the so-called Amazon Synod. In October, the world's senior bishops will meet to discuss the development of an integral ecology based on the pastoral needs of the Amazon Basin. One of the items on the agenda is ordaining married village elders in the region as priests, a notion that horrifies Orthodox Catholics. The second nightmare also has a South American backdrop. It's the case of the Argentine bishop Gustavo Zanqueta, who, to quote the non-partisan Catholic news service Crux this week, was a friend of Pope Francis brought by the pontiff to Rome and given a key position in the Vatican's financial colossus just as abuse charges were exploding back home. Zanchetta has been charged with molesting seminarians in his Diocese of Oran. Twenty former students have given testimony. And he's also accused of mishandling money donated by the faithful. And it's not disputed that Pope Francis, who made his good friend Zanchetta a bishop, knew about accusations of sexual and financial wrongdoing before he took him out of his diocese and created a high-level job for him in Rome involving the handling of the Vatican's money. I'm joined from Washington today by a regular guest on this podcast, Ed Condon, who's not only DC Bureau Chief of the Catholic News Agency, but also a doctor of canon law who, in his previous job, handled very sensitive cases involving alleged offences by clergy. I'm going to ask Ed first about the Amazon Synod. Alarm bells went off when the Vatican published its Instrumentum Laboris, that's the preparatory document for the October Synod, many Catholics were appalled by its obsessive use of the sort of jargon we associate with a sanctimonious left-wing NGO. 
but even more disturbed by the patronising language in which it presented the indigenous people of the Amazon, effectively as the 18th century romantic stereotype of the noble savage. Ed, do you think those criticisms are fair? I think there's a lot of reason to be concerned about the tone of the Instrumentorum Laboris, this this preparatory document, and a lot of the conversation that's gone on around the lead-up to the Synod and the Amazon. There is, I think, a real flavor of almost Orwellian jargon to a lot of what's written in it. And at the same time, it's given this gloss of, as you say, sort of a romanticization of paganistic indigenous culture in some places when when really this is the exact opposite of what the church has always taught with regards to how it approaches uh, paganistic culture, that you know, the evangelization means coming into contact with such, such cultures and civilizations and converting them to the gospel. It doesn't mean trying to somehow Christianize what is already there and is necessarily theologically different. Not much Christianizing if you read parts of the document. You know, for example, it talks about the indigenous people of the Amazon as the people of the waters because they know that life steers the river and that the river steers life. I mean, that's the sort of insight I associate with teenagers when a spliff is being passed around. And then there's stuff about their diverse spiritualities and belief motivate them to live in communion with the soil, water, trees, animals... And with day and night, you see what I mean about the spliff, wise elders promote the harmony of people among themselves and with the cosmos. We must establish bridges to connect ancestral wisdom with contemporary knowledge. And now we move into real jargon. Embracing the mystically interconnected and interdependent nature of all creation and breaking with colonising mentalities in order to build networks of solidarity and interculturality. Now, this is a document presented to the world by Cardinal Lorenzo Baldessari, General Secretary of the Synod of Bishops and an idiot, accompanied by a Professor of Moral Theology at the Pontifical Gregorian University of Rome. And it's garbage. It's not just the jargon. It's the Disneyfication, if you like, of reality. Please tell us the mysteries of the forest, Mr. Jaguar. I mean, really, who wrote this stuff? Well, the document, in theory, is generated from the Secretariat for the Synod of Bishops, which is a Vatican department, um, and its job is to make sort of preparations for the annual or every two years sessions of the Synod on, on different subjects. But definitely... On this particular document, we can see the guiding hand of a particular strand of German theologians, a particular generation of German theologians even, that are really seeking to sort of refight the interior theological culture wars of the years of the Second Vatican Council and immediately after. Wars that had, you know, basically been fought, won and lost already. And this kind of weird... I'm struggling to find a word that isn't unnecessarily inflammatory. Um, 
but but a weird, almost in a sense, uh, syncretistic approach to other cultures, one that prizes the sort of intrinsic authenticity of anything that isn't Christianity, has made a bit of a comeback. And I think then in many ways, they feel they're working against the clock. Now, you, there are all sorts of um, demographic reasons why they might feel they're working against the clock, which is they failed to win any, any converts to their cause through academia, that really this is a, a, a school of thought that's well on its way to dying out and has been for some 30 years now. And they're trying to sort of have a last gasp at it. But also there's there's a political angle to this, I think, which is that Pope Francis has not proven to be sort of the great wall-smashing reformer that they thought he would be. And so they're using bodies like the Synod of Bishops to attempt to force through an agenda that they had hoped would receive unqualified and public papal support and hasn't. Well, it's true that the great reformer as he was billed back in 2013, hasn't enacted any successful reforms, and nor has he made any dramatic formal changes to the Catholic Church's position on anything, unless you count his prohibition on the death penalty, and I happen to think he was right about that. But Francis does consistently encourage the same small faction of 1960s-style progressives to think out loud, He has a kitchen cabinet, if you like, of left-wing German and Latin American progressives who'd be completely marginalised if the Pope hadn't, well, disinterred them. It's like, sorry if this is a bit over the top, but it's like Return of the Living Dead when you suddenly notice there are zombies wandering around the shopping mall. But as you say, it's not clear how much influence they really have. Well, I I think it's an interesting question and one that continues to puzzle everyone, which is who exactly is the Pope taking advice from at any given moment? I think you're right in saying that he does appear to have a sort of informal circle of close advisors in Rome who tend to come from very liberal theological strains and have a a particularly militant way of uh, conducting their dialogue within the church. On the other hand, he has an an acknowledged almost kitchen cabinet, which was supposed to be this council of cardinal advisors, which has been shrinking rapidly as some members age out of it. And, you know, we're waiting to see if he'll bulk up the numbers again. But, you know, again, it's difficult to see who's informing the Pope's opinion on any given subject at any given time. The Pope who is approving, apparently, the revision of canon law and penal law doesn't appear to be taking advice from many liberals, at least from what I've heard and seen of the drafts. But at the same time, the Pope who very publicly talks about decentralization and synodality doesn't appear to be easily recognizable in the draft constitution for the reworking of the entire Vatican civil service. And that same pope doesn't seem to be echoed particularly strongly in Instrumentorum Laboris for the Amazon Synod. So you you often, I think, get different images of apparently the pope, uh, depending on who he's taking advice from in any subject. And I think that says rather more about who's advising him than the pope himself. And I think that's very confusing for a lot of people. I think it says a lot about the Pope. He wanted to be Supreme Pontiff. Cardinals Casper, Daniels, Murphy O'Connor, and let's not forget good old Uncle Ted McCarrick, helped him get the votes. And one of the consequences of having such supreme power is that you have complete freedom to choose your advisors. And you have to choose them very carefully because in the eyes of a billion people, you are vicar of Christ, and the buck stops with you. 
Well, certainly there's no question that the Pope bears ultimate responsibility for the governance of the universal church and every document that comes out of Rome. I mean, the, the Roman Curia exists as an extension of papal authority. That's, that's its origin and that's its function. And, and I think there is, if there's a frustration really that cuts across, if you want to say ideological or ecclesiological lines with regards to Pope Francis, I think it's this, that despite him being elected as an outsider who was going to really bring the Vatican to heel, I, I don't think this is a pope who even seven years on into his pontificate really has gotten comfortable with the way the Curia operates, with the way that power is exercised in Rome and the way that basically the whole ship of the church is steered. And I think that there's been a real detriment to his own reforming ambitions and to a lot of the goals he's wanted to see as a result of that. But what Francis has managed to do is politicize the papacy or repoliticize it, dragging us back to the days when popes had political allegiances. We know he doesn't like the United States. Argentinians of his vintage tend not to. OK, we don't expect him to like Trump, and perhaps it's not surprising that he's so suspicious of big corporations. Someone said to me that, given the way business operates in Latin America, France has probably never met a, an entirely honest capitalist in his life before he became Pope. But he's gone further than expressing predictable prejudices. He's set out to become the darling of the international so-called humanitarian left. He takes positions on climate change and mass migration that are barely more nuanced than those of some Hollywood airhead. He interferes in Italian politics to help the left, always the left. And all this is secularising the Catholic Church in much the same way as all the liberal Protestant denominations have become secularised. I think there's a lot to that. I think a lot of people perceive documents uh, that have come from the Pope, for example, his, his encyclical Laudato Si on the environment, as, as being almost, in a sense, an overt contribution to the wider political argument on environmentalism, on market economics, that sort of thing. There's also been pastoral letters that have come out of, out of the Vatican on um, free market systems and the limits of their utility or even morality. And I think a lot of people are seeing this and feeling stung by it. But one thing that I've always noticed about Pope Francis, and, and I think this, this holds good across every topic, is there's often a, a lot of room for interpretation in the document that actually has the name Francis written at the bottom of it. But then as soon as it lands, there is this sort of enormous, I would argue, clearly pre-planned operation to sort of say, well, here's what the Pope really means that swings into force. Um, you know, figures like Father Antonio Spadaro, the editor of Civita Catholica, the Jesuit magazine in Rome, um, and other figures like that who enjoy the public reputation of being the Pope's official interpreters and arbiters. But at the same time, he's not affirming in any particular way a lot of the more pointed or radical interpretations of a lot of the things he says are given. And I think that that's something that continues to frustrate people who view the Pope as a vehicle for their own theological or political agendas. I'm torn on this question myself because on the one hand, I do earnestly wish the Pope would address these things head on and just say, let me be absolutely clear, here's what I, here's what I think and here's what I meant and here's what I said. On the other hand, I feel like that when he does, 
it's systematically ignored if it doesn't agree with sort of the accepted way of interpreting Pope Francis, and which is, you know, a remarkable thing when you consider it's Pope Francis himself is saying it. I mean, on the subject of com- communion for the divorced and remarried, for example, um, I remember he was asked during one of his regular in-flight press conferences, a journalist asked him, I think it was one of the last times he was actually given a pointed question on a subject like this. Um, and he was said, you know, you've, you've talked about the full inclusion of the divorced and remarried in the life of the church. And the Pope responded, yes, full inclusion does not mean receiving communion. And, you know, that's something that I've been repeating ever since he said it, but it's received almost no reporting in in a lot of Catholic media, let alone secular media outlets, because it simply doesn't agree with the approved interpretation of Pope Francis. And I, I think there are a lot of people who think they are more... They're more Francis than Francis, and they need to somehow guard the Pope's image from from the Pope himself, which I find deeply ironic. Let's see if this strange pattern is repeated at the Amazon Synod, which is discussing a, a real hot-button issue, married priests. I think it will be, because not only is married clergy a divisive proposal in itself, but what's on the table is, I think, a, a truly bizarre proposal. Sure. Um, this is not a new <laughs> suggestion. Um, in fact, it's it's been something of a hobby horse for the people who put this document together for quite some time, even decades, which is to say we have this shortage of priests, in particular for very remote communities in the Amazon region. You know, We're talking about villages that are only accessible in some cases by plane or riverboat. Uh, there's no road network, this sort of thing. And they're saying, well, since we can't get enough priests to service them, what we should do is we should take so-called viri probati, proven men of excellent moral character or what have you, men that, that are known quantities, and consider ordaining them even though they're married. Now, the idea here is that these men will then be able to serve these communities in remote regions and answer the shortage of priests. Uh, there's also been a lot of talk of them being proven men from the communities themselves, you know, village elders, that sort of thing. And Let's be clear. <laughs> this is not going to solve the problems of the Amazon. In fact, it's going to make it far, far worse if this were to be given the go-ahead. The level of education required for a priest is enormous, not just the sort of basic education that everyone is expected to receive in, in most parts of the developed world, you know, primary, secondary school, university, to say nothing of advanced theology and philosophy that is all part and parcel of being trained for the priesthood. None of this is available in the Amazon, and certainly none of this is available to the kind of village elder types that they're proposing here. So you'd be ordaining men to the sacramental priesthood who very likely would have at best a minimal understanding of what that priesthood was, let alone how to administer the sacraments. And there's even been sort of an answer to these sort of criticisms. There's been arguments saying, well, we should return to a model of simplex priest, which was a sort of medieval arrangement whereby you ordained priests, but gave them only the faculty to celebrate mass, not to hear confessions, not to preach, not to do anything that might require, if you like, sort of intellectual judgment. And and I think that that sort of suggestion demonstrates the harsh reality of the weaknesses of the whole proposal. But this is being built up and up and up, along with a lot of other even more radical and ridiculous ideas. There was a theologian who attended a sort of pre-synod symposium in Rome, I think it was in February, a professor at a Brazilian theological college, who said that there needed to be an urgent discussion during the synod allowing yucca to be used instead of wheat for the material of the Eucharist. That is, instead of using bread, you'd use some sort of 
concoction made from a local root. And, you know, this is, this is impossible. This is theologically impossible. If you ask any theologian who has any understanding of sacramental theology, touching the matter and form of the Eucharist is simply out of the question. It, it's never going to happen. But this is an example of the sort of extreme fringe of ideas that get proposed around synods nowadays. But, you know, the Pope himself uh, last week made it very clear. He came out and, and actually had to say in the face of all this that the ordination of married men was absolutely not the main theme of the Amazon Synod, that that's not what they're there to discuss. There are real pastoral concerns for the region, and those deserve to be looked at. Um, and they deserve to be looked at not in a way which is sort of hijacked for this, I would argue, distinctly European fixation of when can we start ordaining some married men, because that's what we all wanted when we were seminarians in the 60s, and it never happened. Fine, but the subject of married priests wouldn't be on the agenda for the Amazon Synod if the Pope didn't want it there. It is on the, it is on the agenda for the Synod in the Amazon, and it's on the agenda because the Pope told the bishops of the Amazon uh, over a year ago now, I think, that if they wanted it there, they should put it there and they could discuss it. But you know, I, I've gotten, I've gotten used, and I think a lot of people have gotten used to this pattern, which has emerged, which is a topic for the synod is announced, then a controversial subtopic for the synod begins to be talked about. It creeps into the preparatory documents, dominates the coverage of the synod itself, but then it isn't actually addressed in the final documents. And I think that's a lot of what we're going to see here. More pre-planned confusion, in other words. I don't know what Francis really thinks about married priests, communion for divorcees, gay people. These are unanswered questions. But in a sense, I don't really care because I think the Pope is facing unanswered questions, or to be more accurate, questions he's refusing to answer, about a subject that troubles ordinary Catholics far more than who's in the queue for communion, sex abuse by clergy. Now, to be clear... Most offences occurred long before Francis was Pope, and his predecessor, John Paul II, was seriously negligent in addressing these abominations. But what's so disturbing about this Pope is that, at a time when the gravity and scale of the crimes was obvious to everyone, he apparently turned a blind eye, or worse, to the dreadful actions of clergy who were either his friends or politically useful to him. As Archbishop of Buenos Aires in 2010, he commissioned a huge report into the case of Father Giulio Grassi, a celebrity priest jailed for child abuse. Its aim was to persuade Argentina's Supreme Court that Grassi's victims were lying. It failed. In Chile, Bishop Juan Barras covered up for a notorious predator priest, Father Caradima. Pope Francis mysteriously defended Barras and publicly trashed Caradima's victims until eventually public opinion forced him to remove Barras. The Pope rehabilitated the late Cardinal Daniels, who'd attempted to cover up incestuous child abuse. He even invited Daniels to a synod on the family. He was similarly slow to accept the resignation of Bishop Juan Pineda of Honduras, an embezzler who sexually assaulted altar boys, who was coincidentally the right-hand man of Francis's close advisor, Cardinal Maradiaga. Francis also was, we know, told about the predatory activities of Cardinal McCarrick and rehabilitated him. And now there's the profoundly troubling case of Bishop Gustavo Zanchetta, whom Francis made a bishop, and then at a time when he'd already been told about serious sexual and financial allegations against his protégé, rescued him by taking him out of his diocese in Argentina and making him assessor to the administration 
of the patrimony of the Holy See, which manages the Vatican's property and other financial assets. What are we to make of that? I think there are a lot of unanswered questions about the Pope's handling of the case of Archbishop Zanchetta and and the chain of information and decisions which led to him leaving his diocese uh, in Oran and arriving in Rome, uh, as you say, with this sort of specially created position of assessor in the Vatican's chief financial department. It's not a good fact pattern from what we've learned at all, and it doesn't look like there's many ways of interpreting this, showing the Pope in a good or even favorable light. The fact that he's back in Argentina, this archbishop now, and facing civil prosecution and the case is ongoing and he's had his passport revoked and he's had a travel ban put on him is, I suppose, some kind of progress. But really what I think is going to need to happen is there needs to be some sort of full disclosure of what went on here. And the Pope needs to not just be seen to, but himself want to apply the full force of the law that he himself has written. There needs to be some sort of unsparing reckoning here because this really is developing into a great Achilles heel in the Pope's moral authority on this crucial issue. I think there's unlikely to be any unsparing reckoning with the cooperation of the Pope for the simple reason that he personally is implicated to an extraordinary degree. Perhaps there might be such a reckoning with or without his cooperation if the mainstream secular media were taking any interest in the Zanchetta case. But it isn't. Why do you think that is? It's an interesting question. Certainly some sections of the media, mostly the Catholic media, are covering the story and and we certainly will continue to. But uh, as for why it's not receiving a wider attention in the secular media, I I really don't know. I would think that if – all I could say is I I would imagine if this were any other pope in recent years, this would be front page news. I do think that, I mean, obviously the first C is judged by no one in the Catholic Church. That is, the Pope is, the Pope is not subject to any sort of discipline or oversight from any other earthly authority. But I, I would think and I would hope that the Pope sees and understands the potential for, for real scandal this, this case continues to present. Yes, but you'd be asking him to, it seems, incriminate himself. He's not going to do that. Well, I don't know that all of those cases necessarily lead in a straight line to the Pope personally, but I think one thing those cases all do definitely have in common is a total lack of transparency about what exactly has been alleged over what period of time, what was done or not done in answer to allegations being raised, and what kind of final reckoning was made for bad behavior. I think this is especially clear in the McCarrick case, and one that, you know, I I think continues, and I have to say, I think that authorities in Rome radically underestimate the ongoing damage that has been done and is continuing to be done by the McCarrick case to the faith of millions of Catholics. And it's not because McCarrick hasn't been given the the strongest penalty that Rome can impose. He's been dismissed from the clerical state. He's no longer an archbishop. He's no longer a cardinal. You know, they, they can't do more to him from a disciplinary point of view than they have. But but we're still not exactly sure what for. That, you know, we've had a year of allegations coming out 
sometimes firsthand from supposed victims of McCarrick, sometimes from people who, you know, speaking with a greater or lesser degree of freedom about what he may or may not have done. And in the end, all we got was a sort of three-line statement in the Daily Vatican Press Bulletin saying he'd been found guilty of some offenses and had been punished accordingly. And I think this really is at the heart of what the church needs to do if it really wants to get back to being credible on this subject, which is to say, I'm sorry, justice in secret is not going to wash. It's not good enough to to remove someone quietly, even to punish them harshly, and then just sort of announce it as a fait accompli. I I think the church really needs to consider moving towards a, a mechanism of transparent justice where people can see how individual charges are being answered. And, and and until we get that, I don't know what scope there is for any kind of recovering of credibility. None whatsoever, Ed, when the Pope refuses to tell us what he knew and when in relation to a whole string of cases. I think the question of what the Pope knew and when in a lot of these cases is a, a burning question for many Catholics, including myself. You raised the example of Bishop Juan Pineda, who I think it was just over a year ago now, was removed from his position in Honduras. He was the, the then number two and effective deputy of Cardinal Maradiaga, who was a close collaborator of Pope Francis. And he was removed for crimes that are not all unfamiliar um, in the case of Archbishop Zanqueta, Theodore McCarrick, of the sort of sexual coercion of seminarians, that sort of thing. And it's not clear at all what the Pope knew and when. I don't like to jump to conclusions on saying, well, he must have known something because to believe otherwise is implausible because every now and then you come across cases where the implausible tends to be true. Last week, I reported on a case in the United States where a priest was removed from ministry and it emerged that he had basically a six-year stream of accusations of grooming behavior regarding teenage boys, not behavior that you can call sexual abuse in, in a way that would stand up in a court of law, but clearly grooming behavior, inappropriate text messages, sexual comments, over a period of six years. And this man had been moved to a different parish, given the largest Catholic school in the Archdiocese, whatever. And and what emerged last week was that the, the auxiliary bishop, the number two in the Archdiocese, was well aware of all of these accusations and said nothing, and said nothing specifically to the archbishop, who was left looking extremely exposed when all of this happened. So when I see examples like that, that are still going on in the church. And we say, well, what did the Pope know and when? I I do when I say, well, we really, we really need to know what the Pope knew and when, but I ask it as an honest question without any certainty of what it could be or when he could have been. Or any certainty that the Pope will tell us the truth about what he knew about crimes against children and vulnerable adults. The Pope. Just think about that. We really are living through dark times, aren't we? I, I think that the church is, is still very much in the throes of a, a series of scandals and confusions. I mean, when you have a situation where, for example, a cardinal who is currently in prison uh, awaiting the, the result of an appeal on which basically is effectively his life depends, he's moved to write letters to supporters saying that confusion in the church cannot be tolerated, that if that's the sort of level that we're at, then I don't think we can say we're anything other than at a point of real and ongoing, oh gosh, I, crisis is an overused word, but real acute difficulty. Ed Condon, thanks so much. Thanks.